Nancy Anderson has come to speak to us today again. She was with us yesterday. Uh, she is a full professor and residency director of the section of dermatology at Loma Linda University Children's Hospital and Medical Center and chief for the section of dermatology at Jerry L. Pettis VA Hospital. Dr. Anderson graduated from Loma Linda University School of Medicine in 1976. She was an internal medicine resident at Loma Linda University Medical Center from 1976 to 1978 and completed her dermatology residency at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit in 1981, where she remained on faculty until 1982. She joined Loma Linda University Dermatology in 1982. She is director of psoriasis and phototherapy clinics. She also practices part-time at Vita Dermatology Lassen Medical Group in Red Bluff, California since January of 1990, and that is where I met uh, Dr. Anderson. She's come and spoke to us at many events, and um, I was always very impressed and asked her to come and share with you. She is board certified in dermatology and belongs to 15 medical societies. She has authored 17 articles and averages 30 dermatology specialty lectures yearly to numerous hospital conferences and societies and teaching residencies. Please welcome uh, Nancy Anderson. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. That was such a nice introduction again, thank you. I also had to throw in, I didn't, I wish I'd put in a picture of this, but I used to love to sail, one of my hobbies, and I had a boat called Rash Decision. So I'm hoping to help you with your rash decisions today. And this is one of, you know, our most challenging types of rash decisions, I think you all know, in your practice. And again, my um, financial disclosures, again, I, this was an old one, unfortunately, I thought the new one had gotten in, but I also am doing, I have a grant, and I'm an investigator with Janssen, and the SOLAR study for psoriasis, so that was missing from that. Again, I wanna talk to, to you about challenging blistering diseases. These autoimmune, wow, you know all these are so challenging when you see these patients in your office. I feel like um, I'm seeing more of these than I would like, and um, it can be such, a, like psoriasis, especially severe psoriasis, can be very devastating and a frustrating disease for your patient. So we're gonna go through all these diseases uh, quickly, hopefully we'll get done so we can keep you moving and get you all on your way to the end of the meeting. And we will first, of course, talk about pemphigus. And as you know, um, pemphigus is a um, autoimmune disease, vulgaris, pemphigus vulgaris, that uh, is associated with IgG autoantibodies. Again, they're um, against the desmoglein one. So if I can push this strong enough. So, oops, so let me try to get back to my picture. Um, oops, well anyway, let, let's just go ahead and um, I'm, I think I'm hitting, when I hit the middle hard, it's advancing. So, but by the picture you can see that again, the, um, the pemphigus vulgaris on the lower part is basically you're showing um, that it affects the desmoglein three which is at the, um, of course, in your hemodesmosome and your basal lamina. And um, also desmoglein 1, it can affect too, but pemphigus foliaceus affects most likely desmoglein 1. But I've, when we order um, autoantibodies to skin when you're evaluating patients, which you might want to do if you're not doing it, not all labs do it and they have to send it out, so it can take a little time to get them back. But when I'm treating pemphigus patients, particularly when they're severe, I'd like to get desmoglein one and two and one and three antibodies, and see their level. And I, for example, I just had a patient two weeks ago had been hospitalized um, 
went through the emergency room and now I'm going to be following him outpatient, but he had like four times the desmoglein one in three. And now as we treat him, I'd like to see that they're dropping and feel that I'm on the right track with this treatment. So those can be very helpful to having those for your practice. Again, pevicus vulgaris, as you can see, can be very painful, um, can be in the mouth especially, 70 to 80 patient, percent of patients do have mouth lesions with pemphigus vulgaris. And often it's the first finding associated. I've had dentists who sent me patients. Um, they've actually picked it up, thankfully. I have a good dental school at Loma Linda. I've, I think we've, uh, we have a lot of mutual patients now, so it's kind of nice that we share um, our disease states. Um, again, you notice the classic blisters or more superficial blisters. Once again, IgG, autoantibodies against, we talked about desmoglein 3. Um, they're often superficial, very fragile blisters that break readily, as you know, compared to bullous pemphigoid, which are more tense blisters. And they're usually fluid-filled. They can be clear, but they can also be very hemorrhagic and even very turbid-looking. And you do have to be careful because a lot of times they will have secondary infection as well. Another subtype of pemphigus is pemphigus foliaceus. And it can actually be very tricky because they have this thick scale. It almost, to me, I might describe it as seborrhea or sebocoriasis looking and the scalp, as you can see in this patient here. And it is a little bit more superficial, not quite as, again, the blisters aren't quite as large. It's more um, uh, scaly, seborrhea in distribution as well, more crusted. And again, as I mentioned, the autoantibodies are against desmoglein 1 with pemphigus foliaceus. And they favor the face, scalp, and the upper trunk. Um, again, if you see oral manifestations, they're not very common in pemphigus foliaceus as compared. Senar Usher syndrome is a variant um, named after, obviously, a couple doctors who described this subtype. It is also um, a type of foliaceous, but um, it's very similar to lupus, as you can see, because it has the classic kind of malar presentation. And as you see, um, it's also nicknamed sometimes pemphigus erythematosus, so very scaly plaques that can mimic lupus um, that you'll generally see on the face. Um, I've, you can see it all over the body, though, as well. Um, immunofluorescence shows IgG and C3 deposition, but it's at the surface of the keratinocytes like pemphigus, but also at the basement membrane like pemphigoid. So that makes it unique, and it has the um, both locations of IgG, C3, if you're doing direct immunofluorescence. Another form of uh, pemphigus is the drug-induced, very sporadic. Um, it is more common I've seen with in the literature, especially with penicillamine and captopril. And it, again, it presents more like a pemphigus foliation, so more scaly, more crusted, not quite as tense or erosive blisters. And it seems to be more common with those soft hydral groups um, that interact um, with the um, desmoglians. So those are the drugs that you'll see most commonly. It, they do, fortunately, um, once you stop the drug, the disease does go into remission. So it is something that is a very, positive when you have that type of drug eruption. IgA pemphigus, again, is um, a rare subtype, um, but it can be tricky because 
It is best treated with dapsone, and it is, but yet it's considered a form of pamphigus, and usually dapsone is it's preferred for like dermatitis herpetiformis or IgA um, dermatitis. But this form of pamphigus, again, has IgA at the cell surface uh, rather than IgG antibodies, so immunofluorescence would be very important. It's a little difficult to differentiate just on plain, you know, H&E, so a lot of times you'll need a DIF to make this diagnosis. It is seen more in our elderly, middle-aged patients. Of course, as I get older, middle age is kind of becoming questionable what to call that now. But anyway, um, it presents as pustules that tend to coalesce, um, and they become annular or very circinate, as you can see here. They almost look like a Hawkeye's granuloma sometimes. I had one patient that we thought might have that when we biopsied and, um, because they had it more in the extremities. But the involvement is more commonly, though, in the axilla and groin. So it, it can be very challenging to differentiate, though, from other diseases without a biopsy. Um, Mucous membrane, again, is rarely involved, and also it is um, very pyritic, like many of the pemphigus diseases are. Um, Dapsone, again, as I mentioned earlier, is the treatment of choice. Now, I think many of you have had perineoplastic pemphigus, and I just had a young woman in her 40s a couple weeks ago that was referred to us from the outside at Loma Linda with, we think, probably has this, and she is miserable. It is a very, very difficult disease because they have such intractable stomatitis, and as you, they have difficulty eating, they lose weight quickly, but that makes you worry because if they're losing weight, you also think they may have underlying neoplasm, which is very common, of course, with is what's underlying this inflammatory disease, but um, sometimes it can be very difficult to work them up and find the disease immediately, but we're doing a CT scan on this patient, so I hopefully we'll be able to determine what's going on um, and what's triggering her disease. It is so difficult to treat. Um, you have to treat, obviously, the underlying neoplasm, but even then the skin doesn't respond very well to treatment. And they often get the severe pseudomembranous conjunctivitis as well. Um, and it can lead to scarring, sort of similar to cicatricial pemphigoids. So again, it can be very tricky, but I think classically you'll see that really thick um, crusting of the lips, almost like erythema multiforme or a severe herpes simplex. Um, and then their eyes can be involved too. So it is uh, fairly interesting when you see these patients. You start, they, they strike you immediately when you start seeing enough of them. They can have also esophageal, nasal pharynx, vaginal, labial, and penile mucosa involved as well. There are EM-like lesions on the hands and feet, so that can help differentiate it from regular pemphigus vulgaris, which generally spares the palms and soles. So that can be helpful in your differential clinically. So I hope that's a little pearl for you with this disease as well. Again, underlying neoplasms are usually a high percentage are going to be either lymphoma, 40%, or uh, CLL, 30%. So about 70 to 75% of them will have a lymphoma or leukemia underlying. We had a gentleman about uh, five years ago that also had perineoplastic pemphigus in his uh, early 40s, heavy smoker. He actually had, um, he had a lung cancer. So again, that's, but that's not as frequent as other diseases. They can have thyroid, Castleman's, they can have thymomas, sarcomas, and also Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, and another percentage of patients. So 
look for those. Interestingly, they often had this very uh, inflamed bronchial disease uh, called bronchiolitis obliterans, um, which can be fatal. So if they have this, um, they need to be worked up quickly, referred to pulmonary, and um, just think of this if they have chronic cough and weight loss as well, and um, be sure to screen them rapidly and treat rapidly. So what is the treatment for Pemphigus vulgaris? Well, prior to steroids, um, many patients died um, within five years. And I remember when I was in my residency, we always were nervous when we got Pemphigus vulgaris because they responded poorly to treatment. Um, we basically used steroids, but then you know a lot of times you got high dose steroids lead to sepsis, lead to other problems. Um, so it was very, very challenging and nerve wracking when we were treating. So now we have better and literature uh, support of different types of therapy. So I'll share with you those in the literature and those that I feel work well in my experience. So there's a uh, two kind of phase approach you may want. First of all, reduce the autoantibodies. And secondly, obviously uh, decrease that local inflammation. So obviously oral prednisone is the gold standard for treatment. And generally we recommend one milligram per kilo per day. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I monitor desmoglein one in three. Um, it helps you, although it is a fairly expensive test that can take time to get and get back to you if your lab doesn't do it directly. So it may not be helpful if it's expensive. Just look into that maybe before you start ordering it over and over. But um, I generally, most of the insurances I've found do cover will pay for that. And it can be helpful because as they drop, then you know you're on the right track for treatment. Um, if Usually they say at least three to seven days you should see a pretty rapid response. But uh, I have to admit that three to seven days may not be long enough and it could take weeks and months sometimes to get them um, controlled, especially these really difficult and recalcitrant ones. So what are some of the other treatments? Uh, I don't use, uh, I generally never use prednisone alone for pemphigus. If it's mild, possibly if they have just very little bit localized, but most of my patients have fairly diffuse disease. So my uh, treatment of choice is usually one of the top three. Azathioprine is good, but I've, I've always found I've had issues with um, dropping of their Y count and so on. So um, I and you remember to get a TMPT because if they don't have that enzyme, you shouldn't place them on azathioprine. Cyclophosphamide is actually excellent and particularly we'll talk about it for pemphigus, uh, bullous pemphigoid for cicatricial evolving the eyes. The biggest problem with cyclophosphamide, and it's been my experience, is hemorrhagic cystitis. I think you all probably remember that. And of course, wouldn't you know, I've had that experience where I ended up having a patient hospitalized for about two months with hemorrhagic cystitis. And she almost died and had sepsis, but she survived. I'm still seeing her. She still, we still have an amazing relationship considering this drug that I put her on. But um, I've always been a little careful using it again, but I have used it. But I'm a little more cautious, and I try to use preferably uh, Cellcept or mycophenolate. I prefer mycophenolate because of its safety. I've not had any really bad experiences, although I do monitor lab. It's less hepatotoxic than many of the other drugs. So Cellcept is often my treatment along with prednisone, my first line of therapy. 
And I generally start at two, you can go up to three grams a day. But I usually start at 500 or 1,000 grams BID or 15 uh, milligrams daily. And then I bump them up in a month if they need it. And while they're still, again, on prednisone, at least a milligram per kilo per day. Cyclosporin, I haven't used that much for pemphigus. My experience is minimal with that. Um, pulse prednisone, now if the patient is admitted to the hospital, that might be actually ex excellent good treatment. Use them one gram per day over two to three hours and do it for about three to five days. So you're giving them a real good hit of prednisone, cortisone. They're being monitored in the hospital. So, and then when you uh, discharge them, then, you, then I would place them on oral prednisone, obviously, and CELSEP. Methotrexate, a lot of people use. I have used it in a little bit milder pemphigus, but still, as I said, most recently, I feel so strongly about CELSEP being my, a safer drug for my use with this disease. I haven't used pulse cyclophosphamide. Plasmapheresis is in the literature, just for completeness, I want to mention. I don't have any experience with that, but I do have a lot of experience with high-dose IVIG. So generally, if they're failing a CELSEP or prednisone over approximately two or three months, I generally will go to high-dose IVIG. It's given 400 milligrams per kilo per day. It's given, it can be given at home for, uh, by a, a patient nurse, so that works well for a lot of patients, but it has to be given over five days, so it can be hard if a patient's working. And it's because you have so much fluid and they put it in a little bit more slowly that way. Um, basically, so they don't get fluid overload, and cardiac output issues, obviously. Um, it's given monthly. Um, as they get better, you can taper it off to every six to eight weeks, too, by the way. The hot thing in the literature, and I'll be sharing that with you, if you've looked ahead at my talk, you'll notice that rituxan or rituximab is one of the top treatments now for pemphigus. And some people are using it at the, as their first line. And um, the original therapy is 375 milligrams per meter squared weekly. And what I will do now is you, I usually use this dose, but now I'm, I'm using the new dose I'll show you in a minute a little bit more now. I've just started doing it over since I went to fall clinical about a month ago. I started using a different dose. But um, this is the classic uh, dose. You give it weekly. Again, it's given infusion. And they can, do, um, they usually prefer the first one be in an infusion center, and then they can do it at home. But most of the time, they like it in the hospital or in, in an infusion center. Um, and then after that, um, I usually keep them on prednisone. If I give them rituxan with this dose, I usually also have them already on IVIG or CELSEP. So I'll maintain them on those treatments, and I'll give them rituxan. I'll stop everything but prednisone usually when they're on rituxan. They do recommend in the literature that you probably give it monthly, sometimes for three, um, but there's different protocols. I usually give it one dose and then continue the other therapy. It does take two or three months sometimes for them to respond. It isn't an overnight therapy immediate, but I've had patients immediately respond within two weeks after two doses. But generally beware that it may take up to two or three months after you've been on rituxan to get better. And I don't repeat it except for every six months. And they may need more than one treatment. I was kind of a, a thinking that you only need one or two treatments. But really, um, I find in my experience with really bad pemphigus, you're probably going to have to do more than one treatment. And also, the photophoresis has been reported. Again, I know I've seen it in the literature, but I have no experience with that as well. So this is the new rituxan. Um, 
uh, one of the two, there's two new ones that have been recommended. And this was recommended by a group um, and reported in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, so the reference is there for you. But they use no more than 60 milligrams of prednisone a day. They feel higher is not necessary. Plus or minus Celsept, 1,000 mil or two grams a day. Then they will place them on, if they haven't responded with that treatment, you know, after about one month, they'll go to IVIG two grams um, monthly for about three months. And then, but some people just jump right into rituxan, but I usually try to give IVIG a chance. But if not, they give rituxan. Now, this is a different dose, as you can see. It's not weekly times four, but it's 1,000 milligrams day one and day 15. And then at the last week of the month, they give another dose of IVIG. So in other words, it's basically, um, the, a lot of people will do this. They'll give the two doses of rituxan, one of IVIG, and do it for two to three months in cycles. So that's quite a bit of treatment. But it can put people, that higher dose in really severe cases can really put people in remission long term. So that's a good therapy. Now, many of you know Dr. Grant Anholm. He um, spoke at our fall clinical. He's from the East Coast, but he, this is his, he's a you know, bliss specialist, and he talks so frequently, and I really respect his, his studies. And this is going to be reported in, I believe, in a JAD or archives in the near future. But he, again, says um, prednisone 60 milligrams a day. Is, he usually doesn't go higher than that. I'm used to kind of going 80 to 100 sometimes, so this is nice to see the lower dose. Uh, rituxan, again, he does the two doses at day 1 and 15. But he doesn't, he doesn't do it but every six months. So he does this one month, and then he waits at least six months. But in between, if they have explosive disease, he'll give IVIG monthly. So we got kind of two different therapies, so, um, but they're very effective. And I just want to mention that, by the way, the rituxan at that two gram or that two a month is actually was recently FDA approved for rheumatoid arthritis, for rheumatology. So again, this is an off-label use for dermatology. So, but it is kind of become the treatment of choice in our groups that do a lot of treatment of bullous diseases. Moving on, bullous pemphigoid, which you can see very, very tense blisters. It is um, very often seen in our elderly population. When I was a resident, I remember being told, always look for cancer in these patients as well, or look for, they tend to have shingles or other associated um, immunosuppressive diseases. But, um, it is um, just, again, another autoimmune blistering disease. And uh, it's associated with an immune-mediated uh, BPAG1 and 2, which are major components of the hemodesmosome, which attaches, as you know, to the anchoring fibrils, which causes breakdown of cells. Um, I do want to mention with pemphigus, I didn't mention epidemiology, but remember with pemphigus vulgaris, you see it often run in families, especially of Mediterranean origin um, patients who have family from the Mediterranean countries. Not so much with bullous pemphigoid, however. Now this is just again showing you the hemidesmosome of your uh, basal lamina. And basically, um, BPEG1 and 2, as you can see, are the attachments to the right. And let's see if I can get this working without moving my slide again. Mm. Anyway, I think, yeah, I'm moving my slides every time I push on the, I'm sorry. But anyway, I just want you to uh, beware that. Um, it is a disease that um, basically is, is associated with hemidesmosomes. Again, breakdown of the cells, breakdown of the anchoring fibrils. So, but these are much more intense blisters, as you can see. 
their tents. Um, they're excoriated often, as you can see in this picture. Um, they're on, usually on an erythematous space, very symmetrical. Um, but there is a phase that I see a lot, bullous pemphigoid. Patients itch horribly. They sometimes maybe have a little blister, but they're urticarial looking. So again, um, urticarial bullous pemphigoid can be very tricky, and you really do need to do a biopsy if they're chronically itching. Uh, it can be very severe and intractable itching. So don't forget that if you're seeing a chronic, just a kind of an urticarial or eczematous rash, because uh, I've been caught by trying to treat you know, for eczema, and it turned out to be actually early uh, bullous pemphigoid. It does favor the flexures, limbs, and lower trunk. The oral mucosa is not as much involved as with pemphigus, only about 10 to 30%. And again, watch for peripheral eosinophilia in their blood count. And I, oh, I should have mentioned also blood work. When I'm working, uh, doing, using prednisone and CELSEP, I usually get baseline, just CBC, chem profile, urinalysis if I'm using cyclophosphamide, obviously. And I get it usually monthly for at least the first six months. And then if they're on it long-term therapy, then I may get it every couple months. So, but I do try to follow their lab quickly, uh, closely, because I've had people really drop their white count or become very anemic, especially like on azopiaprine. So I do like to do lab monthly, or every, at least every four to six weeks. Again, so you look for the eosinophilia with the patients. Uh, Drug-induced uh, pemphigoid, again, it's more commonly seen with Lasix um, and Bumix analgesics, penicillamine, and Capitrol are always in these groups, aren't they? Um, also beware of amoxicillin and Cipro because they have been reported to cause uh, drug-induced pemphigoid. KI, potassium iodide, we don't use that much anymore, and gold. And gold used to be used more in rheumatoid arthritis treatment, but we don't see it as much, obviously, now. Histology, again, is you're going to have this uh, uh, blister uh, sub, uh, um, well, the blister at the basal membrane, as you can see, with lots of inflammatory infiltrate, especially eosinophils. So the histology is pretty classic, but again, um, I do recommend doing DIF, and then you see, again, IgG along the basement membrane. So this is a um, subepidermal basement membrane blistering, and this is a nice example of being positive, isn't it? Nice when they're so perfect like that, isn't it? Um, cicatricial pemphigoid, as I mentioned, I had a patient earlier that uh, had put on cyclophosphamide that had this identical issue. Um, it is, again, very rare. Thankfully, I don't see a lot of cicatricial pemphigoid. Unfortunately, my, I love it. My ophthalmologist at Loma Linda, who sees this disease, doesn't want to do the treatment, the systemic treatment. So he always refers me the patient. So, but we work closely together. So I respect that he's very uncomfortable. I guess over time, I've gotten more comfortable using these drugs. So it makes it a lot easier for me to work with him. Um, again, it involves mucous membranes. Um, there's a high risk of scarring. It's seen more in the age group of 60 to 80. And again, it's, it's an autoantibody against laminin-5, which is part, of, again, of the anchoring fibrils. We'll show you in a minute. Now, there is an interesting variant. Um, there, the ocular variant, which this patient I'm showing has, has autoantibodies against a very specific part of the laminin-5. It's a beta-4 subunit of alpha-6 beta-4. I think, don't worry about this, I think this is only for derm boards, but <laughs> for my residents to know. But still, it's a very important thing because as you can see, laminin-5 is usually where you get the, the red color is where you get the involvement of, uh, again, of uh, bullous pemphigoid. But the cicatricial will involve that little blue knob that's just above. So this is all uh, part of that, you know, lamina, 
um, hemodesmosome lamina attached to our anchoring fibrils. So you can see it is a very, we've gotten to be very good at diagnosing and, and knowing exactly where these changes are occurring in the skin. So it makes our treatment becoming more um, targeted, which is nice. Again, cicatricial pemphigoid, the oral form, um, generally is really painful. And I almost always see it in the gingiva. And again, I've had some of our dentists refer us these patients because they are becoming fairly good at diagnosing at our dental school some of these diseases. It involves the genital, the anal region, the esophagus, and upper GI even. And uh, again, they're very erosive lesions. It can cause blindness. And as I mentioned, my patient who I ended up hospitalizing with cicatricial pemphigoid of her eyes has blindness in one eye, but we've been able to maintain her other eye. We, cyclophosphamide was helping prevent progression of her disease. So I switched her and she's now on IVIG and Cellcept. I got her off prednisone because she was having major problems with prednisone. So right now she's really maintained, I'm impressed that we're holding and she's not, her one eye that's not blind has been stabilized. So I'm very, very pleased with that. And again, the skin is not often involved. It's usually gonna be again the mucous membrane. So what do you do for mild or localized disease? Um, again, topical um, steroids, super potent, the clobetazole class one or two, like clobetazole are really uh, useful. I even have them use the gels sometimes in the mouth or ointments. Um, Kenalog and Orobase can be very helpful, especially in the gingiva. Um, the next treatment for milder disease would be um, nicotinamide and or tetracycline minocycline. And I use 100 milligrams BID of minocycline and nicotinamide we give two to three times a day. I haven't used that a lot lately, but I started using it recently um, on some of my milder cases. So I found one patient had remarkable clearing within six weeks and hasn't had new lesions. So I think it's an older treatment that I'm feeling I'm starting to use more again. So something to keep in your armentarium of treatment. A lot of people also use erythro or penicillin, but again, I prefer the second uh, treatment choice uh, Dapsone, again, I haven't found that successful for bolus pemphigoid in my experience, but it could be an alternative that they can't, like they're tetracycline sensitive. Um, sulfonamides have been used. I'm always nervous with sulfonamides because uh, I, unfortunately we get so many emissions with septra bactrim now treating MRSA for EM or major and even minor. So I'm always cautious when I'm giving uh, septra and I'm I'm in Bactrim, so I'm very careful with the sulfonamides. Um, also, a lot of people use topical protopic um, for the skin, especially even in the mouth, but that's off-label, obviously. Um, bolus pemphigoid again, extensive or calcinant treatment. Now we're gonna move on, is again, super potent uh, topical steroids, again, oral corticosteroids. I usually use one to two, I usually use one milligram per kilo. Some people use even only 0.5 to one milligrams per kilo for bolus pemphigoid. It's fairly steroid responsive. Azathioprine, um, again, my choice is, once again, I, if they're fairly extensive or recalcitrant, I start with uh, oral steroids, about one milligram per kilo. I'll use Cellcept with it, two to three grams a day. I don't use a lot of methotrexate. Um, I haven't really used chlorambucil in years. Um, again, if you have uh, oral or ocular, definitely cyclophosphamide is indicated as the top treatment for that, along with prednisone. Um, I do use IVIG for those recalcitrant cases, again, and rituxan also. 
same doses as for pemphigus. Plasma exchange, again, I have no experience with. Now, once again, I want to just summarize, and this is Dr. Grant Anholm from our uh, fall clinical again. He uses topical steroids always in just limited cases. He likes the niacinamide, the um, tetracyclines uh, together, or methotrexate. Um, he usually uses 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilo. He feels he gets really good response. He doesn't have to use as high a doses as he does with pemphigus. Again, he uses, he uses Celcept and azathioprine as his second ages. And again, he feels you don't have to use higher than two grams of Celsep, whereas I tend to use three grams in pemphigus. Dapsone can be helpful. And he says, again, think about your cyclophosphamide um, and rituxan, though the end plasmapheresis, but they're rarely needed. So again, I hope this is giving you some guidance on therapy. Again, do your lab baseline. I do it monthly when I'm on these drugs. Follow them carefully. Um, Linear, um, oh, and also just to mention, with prednisone, I always remind my patients to um, you, you know, take their uh, calcium and vitamin D. I usually recommend um, uh, 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day with vitamin D and to take that daily um, when they're on high-dose steroids. If they, um, I do get DEXA scans at six months on these high-dose prednisone patients and then yearly. If they have osteopenia or even early osteoporosis, obviously you need to get them to their primary for appropriate therapy. But I do, I do like to be the one to make sure they're getting their DEXA scans because a lot of times they think they're primary care. They don't see as often sometimes as me and they, they forget to order them. So kind of keep that in your mind. No, don't forget your DEXA scans and treating when they're on these high dose steroids. Linear IgA dermatosis, again, is an autoimmune subepidermal bullous disease. Um, it's also nicknamed or called now chronic bullous disease of childhood. And it frequently presents as these annular blisters, as you can see. They're called the crown of jewels. And they're very common in the flexors, again, and in the groin area. They can be drug-induced, again, Vanco and penicillin. I've seen quite a few of these with Vanco now, so be aware of that. When patients are hospitalized and placed on Vanco, we're getting quite a few consults for that. Also cephalosporins. I've been seeing more linear IgA dermatoses. And of course, here again, penicillamine and Capitril are uh, agents to be worried about. Also, once again, you can see an IgA dermatosis like you can perineoplastic pemphigus associated with uh, CLL, um, B-cell lymphoma, bladder cancer, and plasmocytomas have all been described in the literature. And also, if there's been a chronic infection like varicella, if they've had tetanus infection, believe it or not, or status post-antibiotic um, therapy or upper respiratory, and for re upper respiratory infection, a lot of times you'll see IgA um, dermatosis sometimes. Again, IgA is seen at the um, basement membrane zone when you do DIF with this disease. And the next one is dermatitis herpetiformis. As you all know, this is a disease I probably all of you have seen in your practice. It's a very challenging disease. Um, it's associated with the gluten-sensitive enteropathy. 90% uh, of patients do have the gluten-sensitive enteropathy, but a lot of times, um, only about 20% of patients are really symptomatic. So it's something to keep in mind, though, because putting them on a gluten-free diet, even though they're not symptomatic, will generally definitely help their skin disease. So it's something that 
but I under, I've seen the diet, and I know patients say it can be hard, but it's worth it because it really helps their skin disease. It's associated with HLA class two, DQ2. Again, I don't think you have to worry unless you're, you know, like our derm residents, always having to know this for our derm boards. So I always throw these in, sorry. Um, but it's good knowledge so you know that um, there is a, you know, a association. And as we're getting closer to targeting our, our genetics more and more, I think we'll be able to predict many of us who are gonna have skin diseases in the near future based on our genetic, um, uh, ge or based on our DNA genome. Again, DH is uh, popular in pustular and vesicular, well, not pustular, but vesicular. It's usually seen on the extensor surfaces. It's very itchy, very pruritic. Um, it does have neutrophils now when you look at the dermal papillae. So this is a neutrophilic disease. It also has, again, the granular IgA on DIF. And it does respond. This is the disease. The IgA diseases, of course, are the diseases that do respond well to dapsome. So um, basically, that's really important treatment. And also, just be aware that there's other autoimmune disorders that can be associated with DH. So um, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid, and insulin-dependent diabetics have, are commonly will have DH. And I've noticed that in a lot of my patients that I've kind of looked back and thought about, yes, they do often have one of the other diseases. Pernicious anemia, less common and rare. Addison's, autoimmune hepatitis, alopecia, myasthenia gravis, sarcoid, scleroderma, Sjogren's, uh, SLE, and of course vitiligo. So this is all from Bologna, but I think that's something to be very aware of so you can help patients, especially like if they have Sjogren's syndrome, that they get appropriate treatment for that and so on. So the treatment for IgA dermatoses, again, is Dapsone 25 to 50 milligrams a day in adults. For children, we do it by weight, 0.5 milligrams per kilo per day. I, I did have a, a cute, sweet little eight-year-old who had this disease a few years ago, and she responded beautifully to Dapsone. But she was very insistent that her whole family go on the uh, gluten-free diet. I was so proud of her because she made her whole family get on the diet with her. And of course, they all were feeling better, and she certainly got a lot better faster. So sometimes it takes the kids in the family to get things going. Uh, check the G6PD. I don't want you to forget, always check G6PD before you place them on Dapsone because as you know, they can. if that's low, you should not put them on the drug. Um, because they're much more prone to getting hemolytic anemia and hemoglobulinemia. They also can have even a fatal agranulocytosis, hypersensitivity syndrome, and neuropathy. I know when you read all these, it's like, do I even dare put them on these drugs? But they are really wonderfully, they work wonderfully. Just monitor closely. Again, I usually get lab baseline or CBC with diff and chem profile at baseline. I get it in two weeks, and then I get it every month or two thereafter, depend, usually monthly for at least the six first six months. Um, if they're unable to tolerate Dapsone, then my next step is using sulfapyridine. For a while, it was difficult to get. I believe I, you can obtain it again. For a while, it was not available on the market, but um, I did order it not long ago for another patient. But at 500 milligrams TID, and you can go up to two grams uh, TID. And once again, don't forget, it really helps this disease if you get them on a gluten-free diet. Very, very critical. And it makes their skin disease so much better, and it makes them feel so much better. And a lot of these references I use um, from Bologna 
which has such great you know, charts and so on. So I wanted to just mention our textbook of Bologna. I thank you so much for inviting me to be with you. Um, I appreciate um, the uh, reception. Um, it was wonderful working with all of you. I was delighted to be able to share my information and my experiences with you. And thank you again. And I wish you all well in your, as you practice. I hope this has been extremely helpful for your everyday practices, not only my psoriasis lecture, but this uh, autoimmune bolus lecture, to make it maybe easier to know what steps to do for treatment. I know when I was a young resident, it was always challenging to try to decide what protocol to use. And it's nice when you can get a basic protocol you can use. That, and we set this up in our office quite a bit so that the residents and our PAs all can be on boards and do similar things. And our patients, I feel, get the best care that way. Um, do you want to wait on questions or comments or meet in back? So I know you would like to keep moving if possible. So um, I can be in back if you have any questions or comments because I know we're ahead of time and it would be great to be able to finish a little early. Thank you again very much, everyone. <laughs>